Frances Willard didn't learn how to ride a bicycle until she was 53 years old. Granted, it was 1893 and bicycles were fairly new contraptions, but learning how to ride a bike wasn't just a new form of entertainment for Frances. It was a political act. A bold step across the threshold of home into the public sphere where women weren't exactly welcomed. For Frances, who was a white upper-class temperance reformer and women's suffragist, the bicycle was a machine for freedom. It took Frances three months to get the hang of riding her blithes and steed, as she called it, and the accomplishment meant so much to her that she wrote a book about it called A Wheel Within a Wheel. In it, Frances is wordy, high-minded, and really enjoys using the bicycle as a metaphor for personal and social improvement. Indeed, she writes, I found a whole philosophy in the winning and wooing of my bicycle. He who succeeds, or to be more exact, she who succeeds in gaining mastery over such an animal as my bicycle Gladys, will gain the mastery of life. Frances did many great things in her life beyond the winning and wooing of her bicycle. She was known mainly as the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which championed suffrage. She was involved in campaigning for the eight-hour workday. She was the first dean of women at Northwestern University, and she succeeded in raising the age of consent in many states. And my favorite, she co-founded a publishing coalition comprised solely of women. She was a multifaceted lady. So why did she take so much time and effort in expounding the benefits of the bicycle? For Frances Willard, riding a bicycle was the physical embodiment of what she worked to achieve every day of her life. To prove that women were not just the encumbrance and toy of man, that they could be leaders, politicians, counselors, spiritual guides, capable of standing side by side with men in all of life's dealings. The bicycle ushered in a new era, and the new women would be seen pedaling into the thick of it, with their votes and their voices and their influence and careers, and everything would change for the better. It was a beautiful view of the world, however shunted, controlled, and feared by others, and however exclusive it proved to be in reality. Dr. Melody Hoffman is an instructor of communications and the author of Bike Lanes Are White Lanes. In it, she writes, In 1900, journalist Ida B. Wells was covering lynching and probably not remotely interested in combating myths of women's health and cycling. Working-class women in the 1920s worked long hours in factories, as many work today at minimum-wage jobs. Therefore, it's not a stretch to assume that African-American and working-class white women did not have time or energy to focus on the feminist potential of the bicycle. Frances almost points this out in her own writing. She notes that in France, riding a bicycle had become all the rage among the aristocracy. But that's really as far as she gets. She can't make the connection that having time and money to play on a bicycle was in essence classist and by extension racist. For all of her high-mindedness and nearsightedness, Frances never got to see the freedoms she worked toward. She died just six years after learning how to ride her bike, and more than three decades would pass before women gained the right to vote. But what about now? What do we see? How accessible here and now is the freedom and independence that the bicycle first promised? Can we ride our blithesome steeds into the public square and be heard and respected? Do we feel confident and accepted on the roads and trails throughout the U.S. and beyond? And really, who are we in this equation? It's not like the term women refers to one homogenous mass of people. We are black, white, brown, fat, thin, queer, cisgender, able-bodied, and people with disabilities, and so much more. So that's what we're here to explore, the vast scope of experiences of women who travel through the world atop the venerable and yet vulnerable bicycle. When we ride, we put ourselves unprotected out into the world and find out pretty quickly what the world thinks of us. But equally so, we find out what we think of ourselves. And if there's one thing we all have in common, it's that we discover that we are strong, we are capable, and at times we are very uncomfortable. Welcome to Dynamo Jenny. I'm your host, Jessica Zephyrs, with Adventure Cycling Association. I hope you enjoy the six-episode series of Women, Bikes, and Taking on Public Space. Let's start at the beginning. How far back do you want me to go? This amazing human is Tessa Hulse. 
She's equal parts visual artist, writer, and bicycle traveler, who also happens to love history. Okay, actually, before we start, let me grab a glass of water, because I imagine I'm going to want that, and I'm tethered to this microphone. Hold on. Tessa's interest in history and bicycles was widely known among her friends. So when the bikepacking organization, WTF Bike Explorers, held their first summit for women, trans, femme, and non-binary people a few years ago, they asked Tessa to put her research skills to work, finding women cyclists in history that they could look to and celebrate for their feats of athleticism and adventurousness. Okay, I'm back. So she did. Tessa was kind of amazed at how many articles and books from the 1860s have been digitized and made available online. But even so, her dive into primary documents sounds, well, exhaustive. I have always been an avid reader, and I grew up in a town of 350 people, um, so I didn't really have friends within 20 miles. So reading books a few linear feet at a time has been something that's been my entire life. And during my time on the road, you know, on a first trip from Southern California to Maine, I heard all the time that a woman couldn't do what I was doing. And so I started looking into counterexamples because my own life didn't hold enough weight to basically be taken at face value. And that was initially what piqued my interest in women in the outdoors. Uh, And at first I started focusing on the early 1900s just because that was the era when documentation became available. And over the years, that just became a larger and larger part of what I do professionally. It's really interesting how the more you start to research a topic, you start to see all these interconnected threads and you start to see that the same people are showing up and you get a sense of, of how all of this information was playing off of each other. And I think that's part of how I learn how to trust my sources is by researching deeply enough to start to have a big picture sense of what the entire scene looked like at that time. In short, bicycles allowed women to be alone, autonomous, and self-sufficient for the first time in their lives. And this was the first time that women were able to go out without chaperones and to have a sense of personal agency in how they literally left the house. For us, Tessa knows a lot about the history of the bicycle and how it transformed from a bike you push with your feet to finally something you would recognize today, a machine with brakes and air-filled tires that you don't have to stop with the soles of your shoes and that don't sound nearly as terrifying as some of the other versions of the bicycle. She also tells us how this transformed machine ended up transforming America. The first instance of a bicycle can be traced back to the 1500s, but for the intents and purposes of things that we recognize as a modern bicycle, that starts in the 1800s. And that was, of course, a really interesting time in U.S. history, uh, especially in the late 1800s, because what you're seeing is the expansion of the railway system. You're seeing states become linked through travel in this way. You also have the gold rush starting in the mid-1800s and then moving up to Alaska in the late 1800s. And so a lot of America was just in this like really big boom cycle. And Um, the bicycle entered the scene during this period of expansion and rapid change. In 1817, there was a German aristocrat named Karl von Drees, and he invented this kind of push bicycle that didn't have a drivetrain, um, and you would propel yourself on it like a Fred Flintstone car by just putting your feet along the ground. And that was kind of the first recognizable thing that we can kind of call a bicycle. Um, Interesting side note, Part of the invention of that was in response to a volcanic eruption in Indonesia because there was this enormous ash cloud that killed a bunch of the wildlife, including many of the horses. And so um, Carl von Drees created this machine because so many of the horses died. And then in 1850s, that's when pedals are added and there are a number of different people who claim to have a made this innovation, so it's a little contested. And this is when this device is renamed the Velocipede. And at this point, wheels are still made out of steel or wood, and so the machines are often called bone shakers for obvious reasons. (music) 
And then in 1866, we see the arrival of the penny farthing, which is also known as the ordinary. And these were the large front-wheeled bicycles that we're all familiar with from uh, historical photos. And the interesting thing about them is that they had to be individually fit to every rider because the size of the wheel was based on the length of your inseam. So you couldn't just switch bikes with somebody else. And then the safety bicycle comes along in either 1884 or 85, depending on which sources you choose to follow. And that was invented by John Kemp Starley. And this is where we see wheels of the same size, which were often pneumatic, and you have a drivetrain, pedals, and the ability to steer. So brakes are still a handful of years off at this point, but this is essentially the advent of the modern bicycle. The really important thing to keep in mind is up until that point, the horse was the pinnacle of transportation and horses were very expensive. So they could only be used by people who had the financial resources to buy, feed, and care for a horse. And so what bicycles did is they became this amazing democratizing agent where initially they were really expensive. So a bicycle initially would cost about the equivalent of $2,500. But as technology progressed and they became cheaper to manufacture, that price came down very, very quickly. And so suddenly, uh, people at all sections of social standing and economic class were able to have a reliable means of transportation. And America, in short, just went bicycle crazy. So the majority of the middle class could now afford a bicycle, and women were taking them up in droves. But what did that actually mean for women? Women basically were being wives and mothers. Uh, there weren't really many other roles available to them in that era. Just to kind of talk a little bit about what that might have looked like. When we are M A double R I E D H A double P Y, we'll be. I'm going to be U Y U T, a nice little H O U S E. Women weren't allowed to get an education, they couldn't initiate a divorce, they couldn't own property, they couldn't vote, they couldn't go out unchaperoned. And so that really limited the options for women in that era. Um, interesting tidbit is that when trains were first becoming invented and they were being used for transportation, it was posited that women shouldn't be able to ride them because it was too dangerous for a women's uterus to move that quickly. So women weren't really up to all that much. And you'll notice in this era that there are a lot of seamstresses, and that's because that's one of the few roles that women could actually do. Because that was work that they were already doing within the family system, and since that was seen as being a women's role, it kind of was allowed to transfer over a little bit into a way that they could actually make some money on their own. But again, it was this labor that was considered part of their job as a wife and mother. There were definitely differences in terms of freedom, but even at the most privileged levels of society, um, women weren't allowed to have access to education and things like that. So while there were ways that they could work around it, you know, by doing things like hosting salons or being within upper class social circles, still on a, a kind of basic level, the rights that weren't available to women was across every strata of society. The growing popularity of the bicycle coincided spectacularly with the rise of the women's rights movement. The first gathering in support of women's rights, the Seneca Falls Convention, was held in 1848. And in 1869, the National Women's Suffrage Association was formed. During this time period, we started to see the emergence of something called the new woman. And this was this idea of a woman who was wearing pants in the form of bloomers and was educated, independent, and wasn't content to just stay within the home. And so you can't really take the thread of the bicycle out of this evolution of what a woman could be within society. This wasn't something that was only happening in the US. This was also happening in England and New Zealand at around the same time period. And some of my favorite direct stories actually come from over there where there was a woman named Flora Drummond who was part of this organization in England where she literally was responsible for organizing packs of women on bikes to go out and spread the word about women's suffrage. 
there are also illustrations of women on bicycles going so far as to blockade Winston Churchill's car in order to get his attention to talk to him about women's suffrage in the United Kingdom. It's also super important to point out that what we're talking about here are mostly rights for white women. That Seneca Falls Convention, Frederick Douglass was the only African-American in attendance, and the suffrage movement was equally exclusive and racist. Yeah, so it's, it's a tricky history because a lot of the most prominent white figures in women's suffrage in the U.S. also did, quite frankly, a terrible job of being intersectional, and they essentially whitewashed the contributions of a lot of women of color. And that's something I can't speak to um, what was happening in England New Zealand on that front, but it should definitely be noted that women of color were a huge part of this movement, but they are not the ones who get the credit for it in history. Looking back in the history of women trans femme and non-binary writers, one of the things that I really tried to be cognizant of was finding both images and stories of cyclists of color, and it is nearly impossible to find any. Um, I hope that in the course of this conversation you can see that I, I am definitely a pretty methodical researcher, and in the course of all of this I was able to find less than 10 images of women of color on bikes during this early cycling era. But there is one really great exception to the fact that most of these women remain nameless. And that is in 1928, there was a group of five African-American women who set off from New York um, and they were gonna cover 250 miles over the course of three days. And when they were asked why they were doing this, they were quoted in newspapers as saying, we're doing this for the love of the great outdoors and we wanna do this to encourage other women of color to basically see that they can do something like this too. So that is a happy counterpoint to what is otherwise a pretty depressing absence of any stories of cyclists of color in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Katie Knox is basically the only women cyclists of color whose story is actually recorded with any level of depth. And I think it's important to acknowledge that this is mostly because of the work of one historian, Lawrence Finneson, who um, in the course of his research into Boston cycling craze, came across her story and then did the follow-up to find and interview family members to really piece together uh, the portrait of what her life was like. So Kitty was born near Boston in 1874, and she had a white mother and a black father. And her black father was somebody who really campaigned for racial justice. So in the 1850s, he was arguing that um, blacks should be allowed to serve in the military in this time. So she kind of was raised by a father who, who always was leading with his activism. Uh, her story is important because in addition to being a cyclist of color, she was also an incredibly strong rider on her own merits. And she rode a men's bicycle because that allowed her to be a stronger rider. And she also was a seamstress who would sew all of her own cycling costumes. And she actually once won a costume contest that uh, she had sewn herself and reportedly some of the white crowd that was there hissed at her when she was awarded the first prize. One of the recorded stories about Kitty is she was a card-carrying member of the League of American Wheelmen, but in spite of that, when she tried to attend their annual gathering in 1895 in Ashbury Park in New Jersey, she rode in with a pack of 30 other cyclists, and when she tried to enter, she was told that she was not allowed in. And so reports here are a little bit conflicting as to whether or not she was officially turned away, but it seems like the most likely scenario is that she left of her own accord. So um, that kind of created a conversation within the League of American Wheelmen because the color ban was something that had been voted on after she had already been given membership. 
Um, some of her achievements she is documented as having competed in over eight century rides and there was one instance in which she was competing in a co-ed pack of 50 and came in 12th. So she was a very, very strong rider. Unfortunately, she died very young. She died in the year 1900 of kidney disease and initially she was buried in an unmarked grave, but once her story was uncovered, it felt like it was really important for her contributions to be honored. And so her grave marker now has um, a carving of a bicycle on it so that her story is a little bit more widely known. Riding a bicycle is an athletic activity, whether you're doing it for pleasure, travel, transportation, racing, or what have you. And this question of how far we have or haven't come with inclusivity and athletics brings to mind this really lovely story my grandma liked to tell of the first time she was allowed to play basketball on a team. It was probably 1954 or 55, and as a six-foot-tall, half-Choctaw teen, my grandma was very excited to play basketball. Her favorite part was the fact that she got to wear shorts and that she was allowed for the first time ever to show her athleticism. Title IX, the law that protects people from discrimination based on sex and education or activities, wouldn't be passed until 1972. In a lot of ways, cycling culture was a lot more gender inclusive then than it still is now, which is kind of hard to believe. But an example of this is that when women first were introduced to riding the wheel, there were women-only cycling schools that they could go to. And again, this was mostly happening um, in New England. And so in New York City in particular, if you were a woman who wanted to learn how to ride a bike, you could go to a school where there would be all-female facilities, all-female instructors, and that was something that was always offered because even then there was this awareness that basically there were, it would be difficult for her to be taught by a man. And so there were other options available even back in the 1890s. Back in the 1890s, there was this really popular phenomenon of the six-day endurance race, and this is one of those uh, rare and wonderful areas in which sexism actually really benefited women because the way that this worked for the men is it would be these like knockout drag out endurance races where wooden tracks would be erected and the spectators would stay in the middle and men would ride for six days straight and they would be falling asleep on their bikes they'd be taking cocaine to try and stay alert and it was just kind of a free-for-all and as a result they weren't very fun to watch because it was basically a war of attrition until you know only a few people were still able to pedal. But when women started doing this, it was decided that because they were the weaker sex, they would never be able to do something like this. And so instead of it being a six-day endurance race, the way that they would set it up is, again, you would have these wooden tracks with the spectators in the middle, but they would only race for a couple of hours each night and they would do it for six days in a row and the laps would be tallied. And because of this, it was really exciting and they were able to go at faster speeds. And in a lot of instances, the women were stronger riders because their smaller size meant that they had more compact bike frames and could corner better. And so this is an area in which a lot of the female athletes were actually stronger than the men and their events were way more exciting. So what that meant is that the women's races were drawing way more crowds, there were stronger competitors, and they were getting more press coverage, and by basically every possible measure, they were a bigger success and had more popularity. A huge thanks to Tessa Halls for her time and knowledge. To talk to us, she took a break from researching her family records with her mom as part of her nonfiction graphic memoir, Feeding Ghosts, which tells the story of her mom and grandma fleeing China as refugees. You should definitely buy a copy when it's published in 2022.
Just a note of warning. In this upcoming story, there will be lots of French pronouns coming your way. And let it be known, I have never been to France, have never learned French, and will therefore brutally and unintentionally butcher every single French word coming out of my mouth. I'm so sorry, France. Champs-Elysees. 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 Becca's trying to kill me with French words. It's gone by many names over the years. The Tour de France Féminé, La Tour de l'Arde Cycliste Féminé, La Boucouve Féminé Internationale, and since 2014, La Course. Each attempt at establishing a prestigious women's stage race, or female Tour de France, seems like it's been made up of equal parts success and failure, an overwhelming success on the part of the female cyclists and advocates who make the event happen, followed by a heavy dose of systemic inadequacies that shrink those events into near non-existence. Since the dawn of the bicycle, female cyclists have been advocating for a women's version of the Tour de France to basically no avail. The Tour de France Féminé appeared briefly in 1955 and did not return the following year due to a lack of financial backing. It resurfaced in 1984, where it began as a replica of the men's race, equal in distance and route. By 1986, the women's race was cut to just two weeks, and by 1989, it was gone altogether. At that time, it was more lucrative to invest in the men. Enter La Course. Uh, <laughs> um, in French, you say La Course. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Thanks to Anna for her highly valuable knowledge of the French language. I'm still going to mess it all up. Anna Brones was living in Paris in 2014. My name is Anna Brownis, and I am a writer and artist uh, and producer. And she was able to acquire a press pass for the very first La Course event, a one-day women's race held during the final stage of the Men's Tour de France, where cyclists rode laps around the Champs-Élysées for a total of 55 miles right before the men showed up. If you've ever been at a professional uh, level cycling race, I mean, just the raw energy and athleticism when they ride past you is you can just feel it you know it's it's very it's very intense <laughs> so if if listeners aren't aware of what la course looked like or still does so that first one that they did um so it was on the last day of the 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 tour de france and so they ran it basically in the morning so it it was run on the champs elysees before the men would come in in the afternoon on like the final stage day. So they basically did laps on the Champs-Élysées. Um, so I think they did a 13 laps from memory. So which, you know, in terms of like a bike ride is maybe a bit boring. I don't know, <laughs> just riding laps around. Um, but what was kind of cool for getting to be in the press area was that we basically got to stay, there was kind of this hub right in the middle. So you basically got to watch the women ride um, you know, they'd, they'd pass on one side and then pass on the other side. So kind of got to be there in the center, which was pretty cool. It just was like such a neat thing to be able to be there. And um, in that press area, there was also a lot of like the women who were racing, a lot of their teammates were there. So there was this general feeling of camaraderie and just get togetherness, I guess, just because everyone was so excited to just have that happening. The hope in 2014, when the first edition of La Course took place, was to siphon some of the men's media attention toward the women's event. I would say that I never have my finger on the pulse of the bicycling industry just because I really like riding bikes, but I don't really follow bike racing at all. But I will say that I think as a, as a woman, I'm always interested in like women's issues in the cycling industry. So I certainly was aware that there was a movement to push for a women's race in conjunction with the tour. I don't have a clear memory, but I'm pretty sure that there was actually a petition that had gone around before the course was launched that was kind of asking, you know, just sort of generating interest and, um, you know, sort of calling for this women's race. Um, so I was, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely on my radar, but not in terms of like me following a lot of female bike racers or anything like that. So when the opportunity presented to get to go, I just really wanted to because it seemed like such a, such an amazing thing to go and see firsthand. That, that is something that pot comes to mind too, is just the fact that not really being that plugged in to bike racing 
Um, but as somebody who's interested in cycling, I always kind of know what's going on during the tour, just sort of peripherally, because if you just pay attention to any kind of bike media, it's kind of hard to miss, kind of like when the Olympics are on, right? Like, it's just hard to miss that, even if you're not really paying attention. And I think that just speaks to how much men's sports take up, you know, media bandwidth. Um, even if you're not really focused on them, you still kind of know that they're there. Uh, and so I think that that was just made it really clear to me that at least for this event in particular, it was definitely worth doing extra research because that wasn't just going to come to me because the, you know, women just don't get as much space as the men do. Anna remembers the crowd being a mixture of the racers' teammates and supporters sprinkled amongst people who had arrived solely to watch the men finish, many of whom seemed to be surprised to be in the middle of a high-energy women's race. So the fact that they were running it on the Champs-Élysées on the last stage day of the of the Men's Tour de France meant that like, in, it basically ensured that they had similar media coverage because all that media was already in position on the Champs-Élysées. And then it also ensured that there was a decent crowd because people come to the Champs-Élysées like very early in the morning of the final stage to ensure that they get a spot to watch the race. So I think that there were probably a fair amount of people who were there, maybe not at all expecting to see women racing. So, I mean, that's kind of cool that they sort of had access to that. I will say that the one thing that very clearly sticks out in my mind is just this feeling of um, camaraderie and togetherness and just this like very positive group mentality because everyone was just so excited that this was happening and that the women were getting this platform and that it was just worth celebrating, you know, no matter who won and what happened on the course that day. One memory that I do have is, so Marion Voss won that day, and I just remember her, like she had a whole group of teammates who were there, and they were just so excited. I mean, you could just feel that energy exuding from them, and I just that just felt really special. Since 2014, La Course has changed its format several times, from laps around the Champs-Élysées to a two-day climbing and time trial combo, to a shortened version of the men's stage 10 ascent through the Alps, but with two of the four major men's climbs omitted for the women. Each year has presented a new series of hurdles. In 2017, racers reported not being able to find a women's restroom at the starting line of the time trial. In 2018, only the final kilometer of La Course was televised. The only way for spectators to view it at home was to pay $50 for an online streaming service through NBC. Like you want to celebrate progress that's made, but I always did feel that like here the men get 21 days in this enormous, enormous thing. And then even though it was like amazing to have that race on the final stage day, it was like the women just get to, you know, ride a bunch of laps on one day. So that I think kind of felt, felt like there had been so much work done leading up to that. And I don't, you know, I think that that work was all really positive and led to positive change, but it just can always feel like we're making these very incremental steps forward. Um, and that can sometimes feel a bit frustrating. I, I remember being pretty positively influenced by all of the messaging and marketing around it. I mean, it just really did feel like everyone was really trying to be very supportive of women's cycling and providing this new kind of stage on a international level that was just different from from everything else that was going on. And like I said, to ensure that it the, the fact that it was on the last day of the tour, you know, it's very different than placing it right in the middle. You know, it's like that's a really big day in cycling, right? The final day of the tour, like when all the male riders like come onto the Champs-Élysées. I mean, I'm sure that anyone has seen an image of that if even if they haven't watched the entire Tour de France. So just the placement of of the women's race on that day, I think, was like very symbolic. As the IUC and ASO, the governing bodies of the Tour de France, continue to evolve and shape the format and structure of La Course, many female athletes who participate in the race have expressed a desire to be more than just an afterthought. They believe that in order for a women's stage race to stick in a meaningful way, they need to build a race that isn't just a half-hearted mutation of the race that was built for men. Like with any sport, you know, sports are often very commercialized and run as big businesses, right? Like, and I think that there is this sort of approach maybe in professional sports that 
maybe women have an opportunity to just shift the perspective of and shift how things are done. And maybe it's not just like copying and pasting that format, but maybe it's like thinking out of the box in terms of what that could look like. Because I will say that, as I was saying before, the memory that really sticks out to me from being there that day was this real like sense of um, just togetherness and the group feeling really supportive of each other. And I, because we were already on the Champs-Élysées, we just, my husband and I decided to stay because we were already on the Champs-Élysées. So we could basically stay there and then wait for the men, the men's race to arrive, which of course is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. So once the women's race was over and then a couple of hours later, you know, essentially all of the sponsor vehicles start coming in. And it's just like, you know, everything is hyper branded. There's really loud music. And it was like the feeling just shifted immediately to this very commercialized, aggressive space. And I just really didn't want to be there after having had that really amazing experience in the morning watching the women race. And so we ended up leaving and not watching the men ride in. And I think that, you know, I don't really follow a lot of bike racing or sports, because I think that often it does have this just nature to it that is very corporate and commercialized. And I think that women obviously deserve equal prize money. And women deserve to, if they don't want to be working, you know, another full-time job in order to facilitate racing, they should be able to race full-time and live comfortably just like men do. But I think it's like an important question to ask ourselves too as spectators and supporters of this sport like what do we want that sport to look like just when you talk about equity in in general and gender equity it's like we have functioned within a certain social structure and norm for so long that we have tried to adapt within that structure or we've tried to make that structure work for us and i think that a lot of the important work when it comes to gender equity, is dismantling that structure full stop and building a new one. And I think that that, because it's a structure that hasn't served any of us. <laughs> so I think that sort of maybe a similar thing is applicable. It's like we, we, we know and understand maybe the racing world and how it functions. And so we try to sort of like plug and play, like, okay, if we just adapt this and do this, how is that going to shake out? Kind of like we're looking at it like a formula instead of saying to ourselves, maybe this formula doesn't work at all and we need a new one. Many thanks to Anna Brones, who is the author of several books, including The Culinary Cyclist, Best Served Wild, and Hello Bicycle. She is the founder of the Women's Wisdom Project and editor of the online magazine Foodie Underground. So why are we talking about this? Why do we care about pro-cycling on a podcast about bicycle travel? Well, because we can't be what we can't see. And research by Dr. Cheryl Cookie proves that positive images of female athletes and of women's sports sends a powerful message to girls and women, and more importantly, to boys and men, that we value women athletes in our society. And if we take the liberty to extend that idea a little further, we can say the same thing not just for athleticism, but for adventure as well. If you could say your name and a little bit about yourself, that will be good to get us started. Okay, uh, Nicole Formosa. I am the editor-in-chief at Bike Magazine, and I've been in the bike industry for about 12 years. Educated as a journalist, Nicole worked her way from one medium to another, first in TV news and then a local daily paper. And then she landed a job with Bicycle Retailer, the trade publication for the bike industry. After establishing herself there, she moved on to Bike Magazine, 
arguably the world's most influential mountain bike publication, where she worked her way to being its first ever female editor-in-chief. So, of course, we're interested to hear what she sees in terms of gender equity trends within cycling media and the industry itself. So when you were just beginning your career, as well as just starting to bike in the mountains where you were living, were there any examples of women in cycling and in the cycling world that were available for you to draw inspiration from? Did you see people out on the trail that looked like you? Where, where did you find inspiration and, and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I would say professionally, I was fortunate to, you know, the magazine at the time um, employed more females than, I mean, it was, it was primarily females. Um, my editor and my managing editor were both females. So, I mean, to be honest, in those first years, I was a little bit ignorant of kind of even the gender slant in the bike industry because I worked with females and I was exposed to on the business side. You know, I really, I interviewed a lot of women, you know, I didn't really realize at the time um, and also not really having a lot of background in bikes. I just sort of, you know, I, I, um, I worked with editors who were female and to me that was just the environment I was in, you know. Because you were suddenly thrown into the media world of cycling without having really any prior experience or loving cycling, but not like diving in that deeply beforehand, were there very many women of note, like women being covered, women who were kind of famous or or notable within the cycling industry at that time? Well, you know, because I was on the business side of the industry, you know, I wasn't as exposed to the consumer media side. So um, athletes and, you know, we didn't cover athletes, really. We covered, you know, what was going on in manufacturing, how um, how businesses were doing, how shops were doing. Um, and, you know, I definitely noticed that, you know, not not many women worked as mechanics in shops or not many women, there weren't very many female owners of shops. There were a few, but, you know, it was primarily male. And, but I also, at the same time, I'd say at sort of the executive level, I felt like there were a decent number of women who were working in high profile jobs um, in the industry. And as my time there went on, I started spending a lot more time in Asia and in Taiwan and covering the industry there. And there are many, many women at the top of some of the biggest companies in Taiwan. And so that was really interesting to me. And I, my exposure was a little bit different back then because, I, like I said, I wasn't covering athletes. I was covering kind of the side of the industry that's not as outward facing. So I didn't notice some of the... Um, gender disparities until later on when I was on the consumer side of things. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about uh, that transition of moving from the sort of industry side of things to the consumer side of things and seeing a shift there? So this position at Bike opened up and it was kind of good timing for me. You know, after five years, you sort of sort of start feeling like you're just covering the same stuff over and over. You know, I obviously knew this will be different. You know, I'm talking to a different audience. I'm not talking to the industry anymore. I'm talking to the core writer, the enthusiast. And bike is also, you know, we only cover mountain biking. So it was a lot more focused than before covering the entire industry. I mean, th those were kind of the things I focused on. I wasn't, I don't know, you know, I didn't think a lot about just like at the time I was, um, I was the only female editor on the staff. I kind of didn't, there was so much for me to learn um, about bike and its history and um, the direction it was, it was going. It, it just wasn't a thing, really, I would say. You know, kind of over time, you start noticing like, wow, this is, you know, you see our numbers and how much of our audience is male versus female. And, you know, it's just kind of like wanting to change that, wanting to shift that, wanting to see more women interested in a magazine that is aimed at the core mountain biker. Um, I mean, that was definitely something that when I took the job, it was, you know, kind of interesting to me to see if there could be some movement in that direction. 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was like any one thing or any shift necessarily. It was just as I kind of went over to a consumer magazine, you really start seeing that this industry is primarily net, you know, it's very male dominated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and do you think, is it male dominated because those are the people who are interested in bikes? That's the audience. So that's who we write to. Or one, do you think they're granted equal airtime in like these magazines or other outlets? And how does the audience respond to that? Like, what do you see there? You know, I think I, I guess I'll first of all, just say that I do think some of the numbers are skewed. Like I, I feel like a lot more women see bike than we maybe realize because it shows up at their house and they end up reading it and they end up liking it. And we may not know that's our, um, a reader necessarily by the numbers we see. Um, you know, obviously that doesn't account for 40%, but I do think it's maybe a little bit more than I might realize my philosophy. And I feel like the philosophy of my predecessor was we never really wanted to force the female thing just to force it. If, if you know what I mean? Like we wanted to organically cover women because it, because women ride bikes too. And women are part, a big part of the sport, but we didn't want it to be this thing where we were like, you know, we're going to announce that we're doing like female issues. And, you know, it was more like, let's get really good writers, writers who um, let's find really strong female writers and let's get those people writing in the magazine. You know, Kristen Butcher, who I view as definitely one of the best writers in the in cycling media has been writing for a column for bike for years. She's got this amazing voice that I think re resonates with every writer. It, you know, I can't tell you how many letters I get from people who are just, they've read her for years and not realized they were reading a female. And at some point realized that, well, and Kristen's special in that way too. <laughs> but, but anyway, I, I think that has been more of a goal to try to just organically incorporate the voices and photos when we can, um, you know, female photographers, there are so many more male photographers, so it, it can be really challenging. Um, but doing feature stories where we hire women to shoot them as much as we can. And then also gear is a big part of what we do. So covering women's gear, right, you know, writing about it, testing it, having female testers has been a big part of our kind of shift, you know, finding really strong writers, writers, and um, who test product and um, are respected in that kind of part of the industry and um, just incorporating their reviews into what we do. Hmm. And I don't know if you can or want to speak beyond your time at Brain or Bike Magazine, but I am curious if you have noticed any shifts beyond your work and where you work in the greater sort of cycling industry or professional sports industry that is trying to also shift in certain ways to create a little bit more equity on who we're seeing riding bikes. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely s things I've seen like equal payouts at races. Um, that would be, you know, in the bike world, obviously, in the mountain bike world. Or um, I, I'm not as sure about the road side of racing. Um, I don't know much about that. But you know, like Epic Rides, which is um, a race organizer, they've got several um, events, and they've always really strived for equal pay and. I think they've set an example in that way um, because that's always been a really big disparity in racing is, you know, the payouts are so much lower for women. You know, th that's an example of somebody that's worked really hard to change that. Um, I wouldn't say it's changed across the board by any means, but it is nice to see organizers here and there finding a way to do stuff like that. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Red Bull Rampage, but that's obviously a huge kind of big mountain event in the fall in Utah, where sort of it's pretty much the gnarliest part of our sport that exists. 
And uh, there's never been a female that's it's an it's an invitational and there's never been a female um, as part of Rampage. And there was kind of this event this year where the women sort of formed their own. It's called formation. And um, it, it it's not the same as Rampage, but it does take place in the desert. And it is sort of these, you know, carving these really high consequence lines, free ride lines and and riding them and digging and sort of takes a lot from Rampage, but is a female interpretation of that. And it was really cool to see that. That's the first time that there's really been this concerted effort to create an event in the same vein as Rampage for women. But in terms of, you know, like how much play everything, I mean, that got a ton of coverage. You know, I'd say in mountain biking, you know, the preponderance of coverage, yes, is still it's still covering the male athletes and you know, males are the ones showing up in images that run a lot of the time. But I think a lot of that is, that is who's creating the content many times. And I I think it's a challenging sport on the creative side to break into as a female or it can be. And, and that's sort of what we're, you know, what we've seen a lot of is there's just not as many submissions, there's not as much content coming from female creatives. This unfortunately got canceled given the state of the world. But on the roadside, you know, the Tour de France is obviously has always been a male sport. And there is a group, um, Peloton Orange, that was organizing a women's ride, they were going to ride the whole tour ahead of the men's race, just to kind of show like women can do this. This should be open to women. This is something that women can do. There should be parity here. So it's kind of too bad that's not going to be able to happen this year, but hopefully next year. But then you've got like the the women's uh, World Cup soccer team that has to sue U.S. soccer for equal pay. And you're like, okay, we're just moving backwards in time. It's amazing to me that like the Tour de France, they've been trying to make a women's version since the 80s. They had one from like 1985 to 19. 87 or 89 or something I think it's always been a shorter contracted version and like there have like even with the course you know it's only a one-day event and then they take out some of the climbs some years and it's like it's just so strange to me I don't know why I'm on about this this is about you but well I mean it's it's an interesting point because I think um you know these things happen however they they sort of that foundation is laid in time and then we spend so much time trying to like claw back from that and get to a place of equality and you know we see it with product a lot and i could go on and on so i'll try not to but you know the on the women's bike side of things it's like we've just gone in these vicious circles of like okay you know women we're going to we're going to market these bikes for you that are the same thing, but they're, you know, the pink it and shrink, it was like the famous term. And then it kind of pivoted away from that and women got their own geometry. And and then there was this whole thing about, you know, but all women have ever really wanted is the same level of bike as what's marketed as men, not necessarily, it doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, having our own frames, our own molds. It's more just having the same parts specced on them for the same money, having the same product marketed to women. Um, And so now we're kind of moving back in that direction. But it's just really has been really interesting to watch that shift of how bikes, high end bikes are marketed at women. Yeah, I feel like we started in a place that it's just taken forever to get (laughs) away from, you know, and I think it's the lot, a, a lot of the same with races. One of the things that I've noticed has gotten a lot better and you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like this has gotten better. It's you you hear different language now. You know, there used to be these terms like, you know, getting chicked. And I just, I feel like you don't hear that as much. And I also feel like race announcers have gotten a bit better about how they speak about women. You know, I watch a lot of, obviously, I watch a lot of World Cup races and Red Bull TV has done an amazing job of enabling everybody to see that that um, those races, um, the male and female races, downhill and cross country. And yeah, I feel like the way announcers are speaking has gotten a little bit better, maybe more respectful over the years as well. So that's kind of something that's, you know, it's, 
you, you're not hearing the same language maybe as you were a few years ago. That's fantastic. That's wonderful to hear. I just was doing a little bit of research and um, there's this researcher named Cheryl Cookie, Dr. Cheryl Cookie, who looks a lot uh, at how the media portrays women in sports as pro professional sports. She did a, a TED talk and in her TED talk, she points to this media campaign that came out a few years ago, which was called Cover the Athlete. And it was like this comparison of like, if we asked like like asking male athletes the same questions we ask female athletes during live interviews like oh where did you um where'd you get your outfit will you give us a spin um how's how's your breakup affecting your your play you know um and so it's it was a great campaign for one and it was it's that's been a few years. And so um, I, I've just really enjoyed seeing this shift and this push for, um, yeah, this better language, essentially, like what you said. And we've been talking about women here in a very, very general way. And are you seeing any trends, um, industry trends or even on a personal level? Um, for that kind of talk to and engage women of color? I can't help but feeling like sometimes it's, um, I want to be really careful about how I say this. Um, sometimes it just feels like it's to check a box, you know, um, to kind of show that we're diverse and we're including all these people, but it's it's just because, um, you know, there's been some fair criticism that 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 population isn't covered as much. Um, so I, you know, I'm interested to see if it continues and I, you know, I don't know how much of it is. Yeah. I, I wonder how much it'll kind of last versus just be like a burst here and there. Is there anything you would personally like to see the industry do to welcome more or different people into cycling? Yeah. Like, I mean, like, what are we not doing that, that could be done? Um, better, I think is a pretty valid, you know, like, what are we sort of, what are we missing? Like, is it, there's gotta be more than clinics and shop rides, you know? I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things I've noticed there's been some improvement on, but I think could get a lot better is ads. Um, obviously I see a lot of ads and I look at a lot of ads. There aren't a lot of women or um, diverse writers portrayed in advertisements, you know, you still see a lot of kind of just like the bro sending it. And um, I think, you know, Casey Brown is a female who's been used, I think, increasingly much better. Um, she is, the way she looks on a bike is the way that everybody wants to look on the bike. <laughs> is like so stylish and her sponsors have really started, you know, now are, you know, you open our magazine and the first full page track ad is a woman now and it's Casey and, or decline. Um, and you just never saw that before. And that's really been recent. And I think there's definitely a lot more that could be done in that realm because that is, you know, those advertisements are reaching the consumer. They're reaching people that we might not think that they would ever end up in the hands of. And, you know, if you don't see yourself in that magazine, if you don't see yourself in that ad, you're going to think the sport is not for you. I really appreciate your time and all your thoughts and like the perspective that you have is just it's really valuable um, to sort of frame our conversations around. Yeah, and thanks to you guys for doing this podcast. Definitely will be really interested to listen to the other episodes and kind of see what else you guys are covering.
Cosmo Jenny is a project of Adventure Cycling Association. It's hosted by me, Jessica Zephyrs. Produced by Becca Zook and Jessica Zephyrs, a.k.a. The Z-Team. And Becca Zook also edits the show. Special thanks to Alex Strickland, who we recommend maybe should stay away from the berms from now on. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Daniel Mergan made original art for this episode. You can see it and so much more on our website, adventurecycling.org podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please recommend us to a friend or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And hey, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.